1 Corinthians chapter 16. So we've come to the last chapter in Paul's first letter to Corinth. Um, you know, what, what we've learned so far throughout this letter that Paul has written is we've learned a lot of different doctrinal things, but we've also learned a lot of practical things as well. And I think what I love about this book of 1 Corinthians is it's such a good combination of really Paul showing how, um, how important good theology and good practice are together. You, you really can't separate the two. You can't have good application if you don't understand why. And if you understand why but don't apply it, then I would say you probably really don't actually understand why. Right? So you, you kind of need these two together. And Paul does such a good job in this letter of combining those two things and explaining it to this church. And he's, he's firm where he needs to be firm. And he's gracious where he needs to be gracious and answering their questions. And, but now Paul draws his letter to a close. And this takes us to this last chapter, chapter 16. And, uh, you know, like a lot of epistles, sometimes, you know, we're, we're so used to uh, so much meat for the last 15 chapters that then you come to the last chapter and it's this farewell address and you're kind of, maybe some of you just kind of almost skip through it or you, or you read through it quickly and you're like, okay, this is the end, he's saying goodbye. And as Paul is drawing his letter to a close here. Um, but sometimes maybe when, when we're looking at this, we go, well, it doesn't seem like there's too much application. It almost seems like um, there's just kind of, you know, a couple pragmatic things that Paul just needs to, to get out and hey, you know, Timothy's coming or he might come and uh, you know, Apollos, pray for him and so, oh, okay, I mean I'm not sure how I'm going to apply that but I think if we look closely enough at some of the things that Paul says as he brings his letter to a close, we can draw out some very important implications and so with that I'm going to read our passage this morning and then we'll pray and then we'll We'll go through it. But let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 12. Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collection be made when I come. When I arrive... Whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, then they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, but I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits." But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But, accord, but concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you, with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, 
but he will come when he has opportunity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless our time together this morning as we open your word and we read from it. We recognize that you, by your Holy Spirit, who spoke these words, because they are God-breathed, are applicable and they are eternal. You do not waste your breath, Lord. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts this morning would be pleasing to you, that we would learn and grow and worship together this morning through the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's be seated. So I have to talk about something that would probably be uncomfortable. Um, So, you know, if you're new here or you're visiting, I just have to say, just know that this is not uh, the typical Sunday. Um, But when the text speaks about something like finances or time, we will talk about it. And so that's what we have before us this morning. And so I'm going to talk about some things that could be uncomfortable. And, you know, if you examine your heart and you examine the way that you spend your time and the way that you spend your finances and you find that, um, you know, you're, you're doing well, then, hey, praise God. Praise God. But it is a hard talk when we have to talk about Christian giving. Now, there's this misunderstanding about tithes. Tithes were required from the people of Israel, and there are different tithes for different reasons. But mainly, what you had in Israel was a nation that was built on uh, a relationship with God where every aspect of society was in dedication to Him. And so what that meant was that really the tithes of the people in Israel supported the religion, it supported the education, and it also supported the social institutes of Israel. Now, interestingly enough, this is actually how uh, it began in colonial America. In fact, George Washington believed that the tithe was a just civil mandate because people should support that which they profess. In church history, ever since the, you know, actually, can we turn me down just a little bit? In church history, ever since the 4th century, where the gospel went and where the gospel was very impactful to the nations, those nations also had laws requiring tithe from the people for the church because in those nations, it was not the civil government who provided things like social services. It wasn't the government who provided education. It was the church. And so as you tithe to the church, you were providing the church with the resources to provide the society with institutions like education, like hospitals. And these nations also knew that to deny God and to to deny giving him was to neglect to give God the first fruits of the nation itself. In fact, even in the early years of our nation, the tax was very, very low on the people as far as government giving. 
and the focus was more on giving to the church. Now, a tithe was a tenth of all the produce or production of the people of Israel. In fact, the Hebrew word that we translate as tithe actually means one-tenth. It means 10%. So the people of Israel either had an option of giving one-tenth of their produce or their production to the people of Israel, or they could keep it and instead pay its monetary value, which would be you know, how much it's worth plus one-fifth of that. There's also tithes for festivals and tithes every three years for the community. And in fact, the tithe did not even start with the Mosaic Law. If you read in the book of Genesis, Abraham tithed the spoils of war to Melchizedek. And so what ended up happening is you had early Christian teachings believing that while Christians do not live in Israel, right, we do not need to tithe to the Levites, that to reject giving to the church was immoral. In fact, an early church father, Chrysostom, believed that if it were wrong to neglect tithes under the law, how much more wrong would it be now that we have been given such grace and freedom? Basically, the early church taught that freedom in Christ did not mean Christians should or could give less. In fact, the teaching was now that we are free in Christ, we should be giving more. And the reason why was because in the early church, this emphasis on on giving was important for the community of the church. Giving was for the ministry of the church. You had teachers, um, you had uh, ministering to, to the people in society, caring for the widows and for the orphans and for the poor. You know, Christians, uh, this idea of even something like abortion was something that took place even in Rome. But in Rome, what it was was called child abandonment. So you'd have a child, and it was a pretty common practice that you would leave your child to exposure to be killed if it wasn't a child that you wanted. And so these infants would be left to exposure to be killed. But Christians were the ones that came and saved these babies and, and raised them within the church. Families would adopt them in. And so giving was so important for the early church to take care of these ministries. And it was also important to help churches in other regions. There were churches in certain cities that financially were very blessed and thrived, and then there were churches that weren't. There were churches that were suffering from persecution. Also in the early church, giving was seen as reciprocal. Meaning that as you were generous to the needy, your family would also be generous to you in a time of need. Now, what is Paul exactly saying here? I wanted to to set this up first with kind of this background of tithing and giving uh, in the early church. But what is Paul saying here? Well, the Corinthians, it seems, had asked about the collections for the saints, and so Paul gives a directive. He, this is, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed to the churches in Galatia, so do you also. Notice how Paul doesn't give a qualifier. He doesn't say, um, this is my directive for those who are well off in the church. He isn't really worried about being offensive like I am today. 
Like, it would be great if you gave, but no pressure. Now, I think part of that's because we deal with a lot of charlatans and a lot of false teachers that like to collect a nice paycheck. Maybe for a lot of us, we're pretty skeptical of how the church plans to use the money that we give. But Paul's not worried about asking for this. In fact, he he gives a directive. He demands it. He doesn't even say exactly what it's for. But in general, what he kind of gives is it was for the persecuted church in Jerusalem. And so what Paul says to Corinth is, look, I expect you to give just like I expect the other churches to give as well, like he says with, with Galatia. And so he says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. This is Paul's directive in verse 2. First, that the giving should be regular and consistent. The first day of every week. This is the Lord's Day gathering. This is when the saints gathered together to worship. This would be the day that, you would, that the church would collect and the people would give. It should be regular. It should be consistent. Paul says it should also be universal. Each of you. This was not just for the leadership. This was not just for the well-off or the political leaders who may have come into the church. Everybody. And the reason why is he says, set aside, save up. It's systematic. This is meant to be an act of worship. You're setting aside funds and finances for the ministry of the church. You're setting aside these funds and finances so that God could use them and be glorified. And it's an act of worship as you give it over and you plan. And it's proportionate, he says, as each prospers. Or some of your translations may say, as he may prosper. Meaning that you may not give the amount that the person next to you gives. That's between you and God. But Paul says he doesn't want this giving happening when he comes. He doesn't want it rushed. He doesn't want this, oh, Paul's coming, let's scramble and get some finances together so that we can help the church in Jerusalem. He's going to be expecting a collection when he gets here. He wants it to be worshipful. Worshipful. We give regularly as an act of worship. There's an element of planning that goes into our giving to the church when we set aside, when we budget, right? And we, we work out our finances each month or each quarter, or however you do it, that we're setting aside money for ministry and for the Lord. Now, the implication of this is uh, really that our giving to God, and this is what I want us to take away, is our giving to God is a, it's a memorial offering. It's, it's, it's a free will offering to the Lord. And what I mean is we're not under the law in the sense where we need to give 10% for the Levites. But we are called to give to God out of the abundance and thankfulness we have for what God has done for us. The memorial offering in Israel was a reminder that all that we have is owed to God and he is pleased to accept a portion of it. What I mean is is that a portion was offered to God and the rest was left for the priests. That's how it's described 
in Exodus and Leviticus, what we really owe God is a hundred percent of everything. The, the actual offering that is owed to the Lord is everything that we have, everything that we own, every check that comes in. But God in his law shows that this memorial offering is a giving to God that represents our understanding and remembrance that he owns it all, particularly because he owns us. And now we as believers, we are the priests. And God is pleased to take a portion of our offering for himself and leave the rest for us. You know, and when when you really think about that, when you think about how much God is actually owed, how much actually belongs to him, even when you look at the law, think of everything that he had done for Israel. And he, he allows this memorial offering. What a generous God we have. What a generous God. Because quite frankly, he could just demand all of it. Does our giving reflect his generosity? Now we'll come back to that with a little bit more application. But I want to hit on another point. This is verses 2 and 8. And I know we're moving a little bit out of order in the passage, but we'll, we'll come back to certain things. Verse 2, Paul says, on the first day of every week, and then in verse 8 he says, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. We talked about giving the importance of giving God our, our finances and devoting our finances over to him, but I also want to talk about this idea of time. Um, one of the ways, and, and, and I just, I kept thinking about this as I was studying this text and, and praying through it, I just, you know, the, the way that Paul talks here is, is he, he identifies days. The first day of each week. The day of Pentecost. What Paul does is he gives these important clues indicating dates and seasons. Right? He says he wants the giving to be set aside on the first day of the week. This is the Lord's day. Christians are a people of the first day. We are a people who have moved from evening to morning. If you look at the festivals in Israel, the festivals of Israel were evening festivals. They started in the evening. The Sabbath began in the evening. But now we are a people of the morning. The Lord was raised on the morning of the third day. We have moved, even the, even the imagery The way that the New Testament talks about moving from darkness into light, moving from mystery into revelation. And what we see with Paul here in 1 Corinthians 16 is that even in the age of the apostles, the day of gathering and worship was the day of the resurrection. But then Paul also mentions Pentecost in verse 8. Now Pentecost... Uh, was the first Jewish feast after the Passover, and it came seven weeks after the Passover. It was called the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. This was the Feast of the First Fruits. This is the feast where you offered your first fruits of your produce. Seven weeks after the Passover, and like the Passover, which was 
a feast fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so too Pentecost is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, what we see is that the apostles are the first fruits of this new creation. A new harvest after a new Passover. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because I want us to understand, and I believe it's implied in the text here as Paul talks about it, that the seasons and the ages belong to God as well. While our finances belong to God, that's not the only thing that belongs to God. The dates belong to God. The seasons belong to God. The days of the week belong to God. And ever since the third day of creation, God had appointed seasons for His glory. Psalm 19 tells us that the days and times, the sun, the moon, and the stars, even their movements and placing in the sky, declare the glory of God. They display His handiwork. Even the Jewish seasons and the Jewish festivals pointed to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as well. Now, while the New Testament does teach, and I believe, uh, that no day is holier than another, Christians have kept a calendar as a way to direct the times and the seasons in a way that point to Christ. Christians kept the seasons as a way that were evangelistic, But some of these seasons and some of these dates are not just about tradition. What we see in passages like this morning and in other passages in the New Testament is that weekly gatherings and even memorial days like Passover and Pentecost have biblical foundations that the church has celebrated from the beginning. And I would say it's important for us not to neglect these things as well. I just was thinking through this. I I found it odd that... I think a lot of times we are more aware of um, and probably even more comfortable with national or secular holidays than we are with a lot of Christian holidays. Valentine's Day, Memorial Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, every other day is Children's Day, right? We've heard that. But but we're, we're more aware and sometimes maybe even more comfortable with those than we are of When's Pentecost? I think Halloween is an example of this. And I was excited that I got to preach on Halloween, which is today, by the way, and talk about this. Um, so this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's good. This, this, is, this is for Halloween. Um, when it comes to Halloween, we're probably more aware of the American or, or pagan traditions than we are with its Christian origins. Um, as Michelle can attest, I talked to her about this week, I spent way more time than I expected digging into Halloween because I wanted to teach our kids about it. And if anybody who knows me knows, um, I, I can you know, go on rabbit trails pretty easily. And, and, and <laughs> um, but I wanted to, to, to bring this up because I was surprised to find out what I did and, and even some of the misconceptions over the last century about Halloween. It really uh, began not as an evening, but as a morning of All Saints Day, a day on celebrating the victory that we saints have in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ had victory over Satan and paganism, and even through the blood of the martyrs of the church, that we see the, the church moving forward 
in its commission. And this goes back as far as the, as the 300s A.D. And it was celebrated in different times and different seasons depending on, on the region. But it was in the late 600s that it was fixed as November 1st. Now, the common misconception is that it had ties to uh, Celtic Druidism, which was a Celtic uh, paganism, uh, and that Christians kind of came in and saw this and co-opted it and said, well, now we're going to take this and make this ours and make it Christian. Um, but in fact, there really isn't much hard evidence for the existence of the Celts as a coherent people group and really no hard evidence, evidence even about their cultural practices. That misconception actually comes from a book that was written in the 1890s called The Golden Bow. And what's ironic about that is it was written by a pagan who was trying to convince people away from Christianity by saying that your holidays like Christmas and Halloween were based on pagan holidays. He wanted to show that modern religion was based on paganism and steer people away from the faith and ironically enough, this made headway in the culture and is accepted even by many Christians in the culture. But if you do just some digging, you'll see that it's not really accepted by any historians because it was a really bad work. It wasn't historically accurate. He didn't have any uh, good sources. What really took place where there is written documentation is that Christians would celebrate the defeat of Satan beginning in the evening before All Saints Day, just like how we celebrate Christmas starting on Christmas Eve. And it's called, it was called All Hallows Eve, which hallow is holy, or hallowed being uh, a saint, All Saints Eve. And it goes back even earlier than the medieval church, where there would be communal feasts, and there would be carnivals in the church with costumes and joy and laughter. And in fact, the tradition was that each Hallow's Eve, there would be a prayer service that evening for the persecuted church. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, go celebrate all aspects of Halloween. Today, Halloween has been co-opted by the secular world and has largely become a time of debauchery with sexual immorality and glorifying witchcraft. But the idea of even dressing up scary and having fun was meant to be a way of mocking that the spiritual forces of evil no longer have power over Christians. So even though a lot of these roots have been changed in our culture, and so therefore I'm not saying just go and now everyone go celebrate Halloween, what I'm saying is there are misconceptions to even something like that where we are more aware and more comfortable of the secular holidays than we are even of their Christian origins. But really what I'm bringing up here is that even the dates and the seasons, us recognizing them as part of submitting everything to Christ, not just individually but corporately as a church, united as one body, one church, 
And sometimes we, especially as moderns and and living in a more individualistic West, we need help thinking this way. We need to have our, our thinking reoriented about the structure of the week or the holidays throughout the year. We are Christians and everything we do and everything we celebrate should be pointing to Christ. It should all be declaring the gospel. And so this brings us really to my, my last section of the text, which is 5 through 12. Paul, Paul talks about coming to, the, to Corinth after going through Macedonia. But he says, but perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He says, now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. And then Paul says, but concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the, with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. I think as we look through this passage this morning at the ending of, of this letter, we see that the way Paul talks about orienting his time, and talks about the church orienting their finances. And I think the question for us, brothers and sisters, this morning that we need to ask ourselves is, who owns our possessions? Who owns our time? Who owns our finances? Who owns our resources? And does our giving to the church reflect a trust in God, or does it reflect a love of money and anxiety? Who owns our time? Our seasons, our calendars, our weeks. Or even getting in more detail, as Paul says here, who owns our comings and our goings? Paul submits in verse 7. Paul submits where and when he goes to the Lord. I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But right now, he says, he stays in Ephesus because God has opened a wide door for ministry, even in great opposition even in the midst of adversaries. I'll be honest, I can't stand the direction that the state of Illinois is going in right now, even more so with the decisions of our government this last week. I don't agree with removing religious exemptions for the COVID vaccine, and I certainly don't agree with a law allowing girls under 18 to get abortions without the knowledge of their parents. However, I also believe that right now God is opening a wide door for ministry here at the Oasis and even here in Aurora and in the Chicagoland area. Even in the face of many adversaries. Even adversaries of this small church. And I want to stay here and take advantage of that opportunity until God calls me elsewhere. And I pray that you do as well. You are not here by accident. Paul was not in Ephesus by accident. You are here because you have a work to do. And God is giving each and every one of us opportunities to do that. 
Even the way Paul talks about Timothy and Apollos, he submits even their visiting to God. For Timothy, he says, if, right, if Timothy comes. And then with Apollos, he says he, has, he doesn't have the desire right now to go, but really is waiting for God to open up the opportunity. So now, let me bring this all together, because this passage, because it's the end of a letter, may seem like a disjointed end, fitting in some particulars and places, maybe not feeling all that applicable when you first read it. But when we look closely, we see that what Paul is doing and what Paul is showing is a submission and trust with our giving and our time. Is this you? Are we submitting our most precious things into the hands of God and trusting Him? Does our giving reflect the reality of what Christ has done in our hearts? Our giving must be a worshipful reflection of our trust in God. Right? This is our memorial offering recognizing how God big is, and we've said it from the pulpit before, but you can't outgive Him. But even down to our very calendars, even down to the very way that we plan our days or our weeks, the way that we plan our comings and our goings, do we even see those that submitted to the Lordship of Christ? Our weeks should be revolving around the Lord's day. And I see so many Christians today who don't understand why we gather. And the reason why I can say that confidently is because there are so many Christians who put priorities in front of the gathering on the Lord's day. Or I see Christians that feel like going to church is an obligation and they dread each week as they get here. I even see it with some of you in here where each week it's just in and out. It's just, I gotta be here. Wayside's making me, Life Spring's making me. Maybe just it's traditional upbringing that I can't get away from, but it's just, it's in and out. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. This is a unique time This is a unique gathering of the saints. And I love you enough to tell you that you may come to Bible study or go to chapels during the week or listen to our sermons online or read your Bibles, but this is the day. This is the Lord's day. And that's not tradition. That's from the scriptures the day for Christians to gather and worship, the day for Christians to corporately hear the word, the day for Christians to take the Lord's Supper and to give their offerings and to fellowship with one another. And it's not just the individual church, it's us doing it with the rest of the faithful, believing churches across this entire globe for all history. There is no substitute for that. And by the way, you don't think it was hard for Christians in the early church to gather as well? 
They didn't have two-day weekends. The Roman calendar wasn't built around Christians having a day off for worship. In fact, sometimes gathering on the first day posed a great risk for persecution. But even our year should be centered on Christ as well. Our, ho- our holidays, our days of remembrance that we see in Scripture, and then finally our opportunities for ministry, the same way that we see with Paul and Timothy and Apollos. So maybe we need to examine ourselves here. Maybe we need to examine both our time and our giving. And so here's my application this week, and I pray that you do it. Record how you spend your time this week. See how often you share the gospel this coming week. See how much time you spend in God's word or in prayer compared to the time you spend on your phone or watching TV. See how often you have family devotions this week. How often do you sit down with your kids and teach them the gospel? I know a lot of people say they have a hard time memorizing scripture. Well, record this week how much time you spend devoted to trying to memorize scripture. And then at the end of the week, examine if you really took advantage of the time and opportunities that God has given you. And I would say the same thing with your finances. Record how you spend your money this week or this month. Does your giving reflect a heart that trusts God or a love of money? Record how much you spend on eating out. Record how much you spend on entertainment. Record how much you spend on doing online shopping. Record how much you spend on clothes or beauty supplies. None of these things, by the way, are wrong to spend money on. And we should be thankful to God if he has blessed us financially to do so. But I would just add, does your giving also reflect that? Does your giving also reflect that blessing? Or does it reflect that we are selfish with our finances? And so I'll end with this. God is going to bless those who dedicate their time and their finances for his glory. Some of those may be earthly blessings, but the majority of those will be eternal blessings. And so my question is, would you rather have 90% of your income blessed or 100% unblessed by God? Would you rather have six days of work blessed by God or seven days of work unblessed by God? My prayer for us, brothers and sisters, is that we would examine these areas. And if you examine these areas, like I said at the beginning, if you examine this and you say, you know, this is where we are, this is what God's called me to, and I'm, I'm, my conscience is clear, then praise God. Praise God. But if you examine the way you spend your time and you examine the way you spend your money and you realize that maybe it's based on anxiety and fear or a love of the world and the things of the world, then that's something that you need to 
begin to start rededicating to Christ and recognizing that He is the one who has ownership over those things.